0: The kids go to hand a book. But I'm like, no, you guys keep that. You guys keep reading. And their eyes lit up. Like, I can keep the book. I was like, yeah. I mean, you're reading. I want you to keep reading. I want you to remember this moment. That community is being able to like walk into a store like this and like get something. And I think that part of what that is is understanding that connecting, like whether it be church and home and school, that fourth space where it's not school, it's not home, it's not where I worship. There's a fourth space that adds to the architecture of the human being where you go to that place and you be like, yo, this is home too.
1: I'm Kamatu Akabawizi, a creative and strategist. And I've got a 13-year-old son that you'll get to know as the H.
0: What's up, y'all? My name is Kamatu Ware. I'm the principal of Kamatu Studios, the founder of Black Opinx Experience. And you're going to
2: get to know my son, who's 23 now, whose name is Spades. What's good, good people? My name is Adrian Franks, mostly known by the name AD, creative designer, inventor, just overall human being. You get to know my son by the name of Garvey, who is now two years old.
1: And this is The Stages, where three Black fathers at various stages of parenthood discuss our health journeys, physical, mental, and professional, and how fatherhood inspires our connected paths. We all carry a lot on our shoulders as a part of the human experience, and often you need a friend to carry that weight with you. That's why it's so important that you sincerely check in with your people on a regular basis. Kamau, Adrian, and I do this every episode with a segment called The Way In. Kamau, I just want to jump right into this conversation about Ice Cube. You sent me a text a few days ago, and I was none the wiser about what was going down with this man and the Trump administration. And at the time, I didn't even ask you for context, but I think it's time to get into it. This is continuing the upside down saga of 2020, for sure. But give me your experience, because it sounded like you had a rough day that day in general. And whenever this news hit, just added layers onto it. So Let's to the Ice Cube Trump convo.
0: Well, I mean, for one, I feel like that date is called Coordinated NBC, WTF, like we're going to reward Trump for getting COVID and being irresponsible. We're going to reward him for not wearing a mask, for potentially spreading the virus and reward him for canceling a debate. And we're going to give him... Not just a town hall. We're going to program the town hall at the same time as Biden, which is bad for our country's democracy and sets a precedent that in the future it can be like, "Yo, if you want to have a debate, just call it off and get a town hall." That same day, I'm on Twitter reading about NBC. Cube pops up, and it's kind of like, "What is Cube talking about?" And I listened to his like seven and a half minute piece because I wanted to hear from him first. Because Cube, like the first music I ever bought with my own money is NWA. Wow. Okay. I bought that tape at East Liberty in Pittsburgh from Music Man. And I bought NWA and I put it in a Walkman I bought with my own money. And I always liked Q. And me and my older cousins always liked Q. And when Q dropped, The Marriage Most Wanted in 1990, that was like right around the time I was getting like my consciousness. You know what I mean? Yeah. Through like music. And the fact that a West Coast rapper was calling out the government and being critical of the government when he was that guy who was like, he went from dope man, dope man to like better off dead. Right. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So he did a lot for the culture as far as raising consciousness by taking West coast gangster rap and just infusing that, like, nah, we're going to talk about real things going down. And that was right before like Rodney King. Right. Right before Rodney King. And so then he dropped like predator and like, he was like, all right, cool. Like, so, he was one of the first like West coast cats with a platform to say, I'm going to talk about real things. And I think what I feel Cube did was he allowed his ego and I would tell this to Cube if I saw him to his face, I think he allowed his ego to allow him to get manipulated because he wants his contract with black America, which is his plan. That's his voice. So that's his platform for him to make his platform, like the baseline for what is right for black America is already you're over-centralizing your voice for black people. You're not Farrakhan, fam. You're a rapper that made lots of money talking about bitches and selling drugs. And now you want to be like our Jesus Christ and say that I called the Dems. They said, let's talk after the election. I called the president or the GOP. They said, let's talk. And it's like, yeah, sure, let's talk. But now you get in play acting like you support their platform. And it just feels like he didn't like sign anything with them. But the fact that he is out defending and murkying the water saying, well, you know, both parties, you know, it's like, bro, don't start with the both parties crap. We knew that in like 1980. Right. 1865, we knew that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it felt like psychological warfare. Honestly, it, it reminded me of Chadwick Bozeman died, how like that hurt black people's feelings. And I feel like we know Kanye's gone, but I feel like Ice Cube allowed himself to like be a psychological tool. I feel like more than anything, for them tweeting out the ISQ and supporting him, it just kinda like grabs a whole generation of people who invested in his voice. And now they have that voice turn around and tell us, it don't matter who you vote for, is like, come on, Cube. I get it, you in the 1%. That's dope. But I want more of us to be in the 1%. But that'll mean we forget about the people who don't have money like you. The policies of this administration is gonna hurt people who ain't got money like you. So for you to be out here saying, Yeah, I talked to him, say, like, Yeah, but you're good. Your family's good. There's people in the streets being told by this president, "Kill those people in the street. They loot, shoot them. White supremacists stand by." So he's telling people to kill us. I don't understand how anybody with a street mentality doesn't somehow see how clear it is that you're telling your people to like dump on us. But somehow I talk to you because you want to like stroke my ego and say that my plan makes sense. And I'll say it as like a final point because I do want to open it up is historically, I really compare ISQ talking to the Trump administration and Garvey, Marcus Garvey, talking to the KKK. So people came after Garvey when he talked to the KKK, early 20th century, and says, he's not for us. And they were mad at him for that. People in Harlem was tripping. But I think that the difference is the KKK is not the president. The KKK is another group. And they were having a conversation about, yeah, we both don't really want to be in the same space, let's separate. But I think what Cube did that's different is he's talking to somebody who already has power on a national level and has already been using that power to hurt the people who like his music and like his movies.
2: Yeah, Elijah Muhammad also talked to the KKK, too, because he's trying to buy land from them in Georgia somewhere or somewhere in the South. Cube did his thing and got somewhat basically, I don't know, used by, I guess, the administration. And that will happen. I guess a bigger question for me, and it's not so much about Ice Cube overall as an individual. I guess the bigger question is when it comes to Black America, who are our real leaders that we used to have from the 60s and the 70s? Because it seems to me that when it comes to leadership in the Black community, it seems that only the celebrities want to talk and none of these celebrities are talking to grassroots organizations. Now, maybe they are, we just don't know, but it seems that they're not because these grassroots organizations are not coming out and saying that, hey, we got endorsed or supported by Diddy, Q, yay, Jay-Z or whatever. Why is it that now we feel like, I'm not so much saying it, we do, but it seems to me that our leaders have not been replaced by celebrities. And the problem with celebrities is that they're good at being celebrities. They're not good at actually understanding policy, understand how policy works from a local to a national level, understanding how that impacts people who don't have their privilege. A person like Q, yeah, he may have started from a group like NWA talking about a bunch of street things. But Q also come from a certain type of background. We had two working parents He went to private school. He also studied in architecture, right? So he may be straight, but he rapped about this shit, but did he really live it? Again, I just feel like our problem right now, we have too many celebrities who don't do grassroots work speaking for black people in this totality. And we all know that, we're not a monolith. We all have a lot of the same issues, but we all have very wildly different issues, too. Like, why is these guys are not supporting groups that are already there, like the National Urban League or NAACP or even local chapters of like churches or fraternities, sororities or whatever, who are already doing things in the community? So, yeah, my biggest issue is, bro, is like what Cube is doing now is no different than what Jay did with the NFL. Is no different than what, I guess, Diddy is trying to do with this new Black political party, I think is all in good spirit. I just think it's being executed horribly. It seems to me that they still want to be the celebrity in front of these movements when our, I wouldn't say enemy or opponents, they're doing the same type of work, but from behind the scenes. The Koch brothers is supporting, well, the Koch brother, because one of them passed away, they're putting their money into these behind-the-scenes campaigns and local grassroots, and you would never know. But you're still, at the same time, buying their products or using their services. So it seemed to me our biggest issue is the celebrity culture around these movements or these initiatives that's supposed to speak for Black people in these broad strokes. And that's where I had the biggest problem is.
1: Is it a matter of celebrity, right? I take that point 100%. But what I also see is... What social media has done to this kind of like platform building narrative. And you've got Ice Cube with his contract for Black America. Have either of you read that contract?
2: I uh, started, but it's pretty broad. Up to before this week? I had never heard of him until this week. Cause you know, there's a lot of shit going on.
0: I skimmed it when he first dropped it. I mean, I'm gonna get a note and I'm gonna share that note later. Okay. But then I spent more time with it before this. But I know most people didn't know what it was before
2: this. Right, right, and right. And that's
1: the problem. Well, so there's that, right? There's the Contract for Black America. You've got DeRay doing really amazing work on a local level with things like A Can't Wait. You got Massande General and uh, Tamika Mallory with another platform. There's so many platforms and everyone talking about their platform. And some of them, yes, are very grassroots and grounded, right? But are they grounded in anything that is universal, that we are all in agreement on? To your point about that grassroots level of building a platform that actually is truly in consideration, not just of the game that the individual or individuals who develop this platform believe, but to that point of Blackness and Black people not being a monolith, where are those dialogues happening? that create something like the Contract for Black America or something like all these other different platforms that are just popping up that are all getting pressed at federal levels or local and state levels. That's the thing that really is challenging and what I'm seeing with this. And then when I hear this other thing pop up, I think a lot about like in the context of our conversation, if the H came to me tomorrow and asked me about who the leader was in our community that he should be looking up to or tuning into or listening to. I can't answer that question right now.
2: Yeah. I mean, the only person I could tell Garvey that is probably like a Tamika Mallory. That's the only one I can really say. I mean, who's actually doing the work out on the ground, doing a grassroots effort and has some type of national appeal. Like That's the only one that who I'm pretty much drawn to, right? But yeah, I agree. Besides that, that's kind of it. And that was my whole point from earlier. Like we don't have the Martin Luther King's anymore. We don't have the Malcolm X of uh, or the Mega Evers or a lot of the brothers and sisters from the Panthers. Like these people actually gave their entire working life to those movements. And it seemed to me that a lot of things that's going on now to what you're mentioning is that. We have these smaller movements, but it feel like well, what's the real point of these movements or these organizations and are people truly giving a life to it. or oh, this is just another money grab for the sake of I'm going to start this organization, get some government dollars, give a few money to some of these churches or whatever. And I actually say I delivered on my promise. But what are you really doing? Right. Whereas people like MLK, Brother Shabazz, Evers and the Panthers and countless other people literally gave their lives. Gave away money that they earned back to the
1: movement. So I don't know. Kamal, in your youth, right, when you were really first time jumping into N.W.A. and Ice Cube, America's Wanted, like that whole generation of music, right? I'm curious because at the time and probably through that time, someone like an Ice Cube felt like and probably today still feels like They were the voice of Black America. And we also probably felt that way because of the consciousness of the statements and the context of their lyrics. Do you think that is something to Adrian's point on the celebrity side that they forget at a certain point that they need to reconnect and or take the thought that they are speaking for Black America too far?
0: I mean, I see it a little differently. I hear the question, but I think that we just live in a celebrity obsessed culture anyway. I mean you could like have one of those jokes like three guys walk into a bar, two are rappers T V celebrity, one becomes president, the other two get a tax cut. You know what I'm saying? It's like a joke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know I mean? Like they're all celebrities. Mm-hmm. So it isn't even like the president somehow was like manipulating people or we as a community are somehow getting manipulated. It's like white people have put a celebrity in the White House.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Casino yeah. owner.
0: It's not even like it's us. It's just kind of like celebrity culture, period, is American culture. We don't have a secretary of culture like most countries have. We don't have any nationally funded way to consider what is the heritage of America, how do we preserve it, how do we propagate it, how do we establish connections with other countries whose heritage our culture comes up with. I think that it's just kind of like media and it's bullhorn and it's like, battle the budget, make your story louder, more, see, but it doesn't really have anything to do with an actual grounded narrative. And that's part of America's big problem is without us being able to have a proper national heritage or cultural person in the cabinet. And for that to then begins to go out into the States and then to cities where we can actually agree on certain things, even if it's like not completely true it's like a free for all. And so we get a chance, like everybody make up their own reality of what America is, what it means to be American. And then that's part of what these contests turn into is where we can't even really have an apples and apples conversation. So I think that celebrities are now just doing what everybody else is doing. They're human beings and everybody's a brand now. And so people are looking out for their brand. And I think the part of what Trump has going for him that is a little bit almost sad is that I think there are people who look at him and say, yo, I get it. I'm just like you. I'm a brand. I'm a celebrity. I don't really see white or black. I don't see racist. I see a person who went from being this kind of star to that kind of star. And in that, I see myself in you. And so I feel like NBC, who made money with Trump with The Apprentice, Ice Cube, who's glad to have his platform pushed out there and made more popular, who also made money from his tax cuts. I just kind of saw like the circling of the wagons. Okay, this guy's losing. (laughs) He's losing. Let's find a way to keep him alive. Like it's almost like, damn, the dream's almost over. The whole like celebrities in the White House is over. We're about to have a politician back in the White House. That's terrible for us. We want to be in a world where celebrities rule shit. And I think that's part of what is like almost like a knee jerk reaction of trying to explain why you support him. But Kanye did say it pretty much like, yo, I see him and I see myself because he proves I can be president. He did a whole video called Famous. That's one of the first things
2: he said when he ran for president was, or when he supported Trump, was like, he's like me. Yeah, he did. And that's kind of what social media does, right? Mm -hmm. And if you kind of think about all the stuff we're thinking about, we're talking about Trump, we're talking about Ice Cube, I went and got Garvey a haircut. We're talking about the same things at the barbershop. Ice Cube got a damn movie called, He got a franchise called The Barbershop. You look at a person like Q. well, him talking to a Trump is no different. Than him talking to the exact same type of person to get the green light as movies. Hollywood is Trump. Those guys that live out in Beverly Hills or the West Coast or Hollywood, they're pretty much just like Donald Trump. So what are we teaching our kids now? Because we're discussing these things. The same discussion came up in the barbershop when I took Garvey to go get his crown cut. And again, Garvey's young. He's taking it all in. He may not know how to talk about it now, but he's going to remember these conversations so long as he obviously continues to go to the barbershop. So what are we teaching our kids, bro? What do we really want to teach our sons and daughters, young queens and young kings, about how to maneuver the world? And when you start seeing celebrity culture, which let's be honest, every kid, every generation of kids are always going to be more influenced by celebrity than even their parents. Like me, you, kids are on this call Yeah, I grew up listening to Ice Cube. Love those first four albums. But then again, so what point do you tell kids like, hey, these guys are celebrities and they don't necessarily live the way you live. It's cool to aspire to do what they're doing, but they're going to be different. Right. And like, where do you have that conversation with your kids around celebrity culture, politics in the world?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a serious conversation to have right now. And I've been having this dialogue with the H in general about that topic, mainly because. A lot of times, the H comes with the hot take. He comes downstairs like, Dad. And he just comes with the hot take. right? Now, look.
2: He started <laughs> the word Dad, huh?
1: <laughs> dad. Always. But uh, he's watching a lot of YouTube. Yeah, Did he he's know deep. Ice Cube? No, no, no. no oh, okay. No, no, Tupac is too
0: old for most people. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. People think on Ice Cube, they think about, are we there
2: yet?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Sure. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> Disney movies. No doubt.
1: Yeah. But the age comes in and he's got the hot take that the new iPhone is trash or something about racing like this racer is about to switch teams. Now, I know that a lot of that commentary is coming from people with hot takes on YouTube, that their job is to get views, which is why I can't fault NBC for what they did, because everybody who works for NBC's job is to get ratings, to get people watching that network there's no political alliance there. They're getting people to watch that network, just like these YouTubers and everybody with their hot takes are trying to get ad sales. ad sales, it's bombast, it's trying to get the hot quote, the hot meme, the hot take out in culture, that viral commentary, whatever it might be. Now, then I didn't have to go back and then have some more rationalized conversation with him, which he hates because we're in the hot take culture and so when I then come back with the rational conversation it's like oh but I'm just saying like yeah I get what you're saying (laughs) I'm also just saying but what I'm saying has a little tinge of fact layered in there just to try and bring it back to reality so we can have a dialogue. But the well, dialogue. Here we go.
2: Dad's trying to be a parent again.
1: Exactly. But the dialogue <laughs> isn't as important. And that's the thing that I'm actually realizing because again, in this one way universe of hot takes, the only other place where commentary happens or feedback happens is in the comments. It's not a real conversation or back and forth. And so I'm wondering what's being lost there in kids' ability to actually debate on rational things with facts because we're just not in a society that even appreciates facts.
2: Right. And dialogue is where you can start have different points of views versus everybody having a hot take slash a headline, because that's kind of what a hot take is, right? This is a headline trying to outdo each other. But yeah, it's funny you say the dialogue thing, because again, I feel like places like this podcast and even again, the barbershop, that's where you have dialogue, right? Like real meaningful dialogue. And you can agree or disagree, but it's still dialogue. And maybe that's the bigger issue is that overall in society, we're not really having real dialogue about anything
0: just like two points. And this is just to kind of put this point next to what you said, Kamau, about you're not mad at NBC. The thing I think that NBC did that really is problematic is just what that means for our democracy. And I part of what the Trump administration is trying to do is harm democracy as a way of winning, not just to suppress voting, but to say voting doesn't matter and debates don't matter. Debates are meant to inform the electorate, whether or not. So I don't care who you want to vote for, but the debates as they've been set up by the commission, even that's been blown up. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't a debate. The second debate was walked away from, and now we have competing town halls. And part of the reason why we have that is because NBC decided to air a town hall at the exact same time as Biden's. And that basically completed the cycle of Donald Trump blowing up debates. So historically, for over two centuries in... Of the United States. And for the first time, we're actually having like our debates as a system was blown up by Donald Trump
2: and NBC was his accomplice.
1: 100%. And I've been you thinking about sending the H to like Toastmasters. You guys remember Toastmasters? Oh, I remember
2: Toastmasters. Yeah. Yeah.
1: it's great. But I'm wondering what they're teaching now. Like, has the debate style changed? Toastmasters is an organization that teaches people, kids and adults, how to debate. It's basically like, debate training, dialogue training. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm down for it. Cause I want that conversation and I want him to engage in some of these conversations that we're having. Like whenever we get together at the studio and he's super quiet, because he just doesn't have a way into a lot of the conversations. I want him to find some more ways into topics that matter to him and things like that. But right now he feels like such an outsider. And so I would welcome those heated conversations and those intellectual debates with the dude versus YouTube hot takes at the moment. Every episode, we dive into a topic on fatherhood and parenthood that we think important to explore more deeply. It may be the result of a life event, a subject that we've all wanted to discuss, or something happening in society and culture affecting us as parents.
0: I guess this point kind of goes back to what we're beginning to talk about. It sounds like we want to kick it about barbershops. In many respects, what I feel like when we're in dialogue, it just feels like I'm at the barbershop. 100%. And I feel like when it comes out to like Black fatherhood, that also was like a moment because like, I remember going to the shop with my dad, and then it was a thing when I would go by myself because my dad had a different barber. And then I remember what it was like to go to the barbershop and see other sons and their fathers. And then now you get to a point where it's like you and other people bringing your sons. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though people are having discussions and yelling and arguing, it's almost like there's like something in the back of your head that what we're really doing is creating an atmosphere for the kids to grow up in.
2: 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I took Garvey to get his hair cut yesterday. And we went to Killer Mike's swag shop up in Edgewood and ATL. It was cool, man, because the three barbers out had no clue. Never met him a day in my life. Instantly connect, right? One guy by the name of Ernest was cutting some other guy's hair. And I was waiting for my barber, Jacques, to come through and cut Garvey. They instantly connected with Garvey because he's a little young homie. And it was just that thing, right? It was unspoken kind of like energy. Yeah. Even Ernest gave Garvey, by the time we left, he gave him a plane because he saw that Garvey like trucks because Garvey had like a truck in his hand. Right. So he gave him like an airplane. So it's small things like that. I think is mad chill. You know,
1: It just gave me goosebumps, man. It makes me think about so many community organizations of our use that really were meant to connect at all levels. At all levels, on the adult level, on the family level, on the individual level, on the kid level, to let that offering, that let Garvey know that he's welcome here anytime. He can walk in here anytime and get love and get planes. And there was something about that, man. You know, Kamau and I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I still have the jingle from the barbershop that i used to go to in my head there's this rapper out of pittsburgh named tuffy Tough.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then in the barbershop in homewood yeah man i'm tuffy Tough. i get my fades at wade
2: hey <laughs> okay i dig it
1: man wade's was this shop now i don't remember my first haircut but every memorable haircut i remember i got at wade and when I walked into Wade's as a kid, and the H is a bit like this now. Like I know, even though I don't really have a whole lot of really grounded, vivid memories of childhood, I do know that I was a quiet kid in general, same way that I am now, very kind of introspective in a lot of ways. However, I loved going to Wade's because I felt like, I could say anything or that I could have a voice or I could hear the voice of the community. And it was such a special thing because, I mean, I grew up in a few different neighborhoods. And no matter what neighborhood I grew up in, even when my mother was trying to get us into more middle-class neighborhoods and to put us in a better school systems, I would always go back to Wade's because that was my connection to how and where I grew up. And like- when I think about it even viscerally now, I feel like I was walking into 30 to 40 people in there at one time in a place with like four or five chairs because that was just a place to commute, period. And there's a barbershop here that I take the H2 now, and that's the one that feels good. And everyone in there speaks Spanish.
2: Oh, that's dope.
1: They're not speaking a word of English when we're in there (laughs) at all, but it feels the same. And that's the thing. It feels the same.
0: Are they um, Dominican?
1: I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. Dominican or Puerto Rican. I need to ask just to like to connect, but I got a recommendation for the shop because I wanted to do to get a really tough fade and he wanted to rock the high top at one point. And so I wanted to make sure that if he was going to get it, that he was looking right. Get it right. Yeah, right, right. man. I'll text you guys a picture of my hot top fade after this. Whew. Oh, I got one too. For it you was too. terrible, I, bro. It was man. terrible, man. <laughs> but I,
2: I had the high right, low ref, right the step, the ramp, the gun. But I had all of that. Yeah, now you I did. got zero.
1: <laughs> I got a
2: runway, bro. It is straight concrete. Nothing. <laughs> bro. Nothing ahead.
0: Man, you've been pulling it off since I've known you, man. I think if I saw you with hair, I would be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got you to see know, you some hair. photos. <laughs> I mean, to see you with hair now, like from a brand point of view, the way you carry yourself, both of y'all cats, man. Like the no hair beard situation is a works for both, for both of y'all. Y'all good.
1: It just transferred. It transferred. It went from high to low. Uh, I'll take it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I told two of my boys who were bald that before, and they both looked at me and goes, Yeah, but we can't hear that from you, man, because you got options.
2: Right. (laughs) A lot of options. (laughs) I was telling Garvey, you know, he don't understand me right now. So, you know, the barbershop, we were just talking with the other brothers in in the shop, right? Like, hey, this is kind of like truly the last sanctuary for brothers. That's truly ours, right? Like one would say that most churches and places of worship are mostly going to be ran by women. And the house definitely is 100% centered around the woman. But if you're talking about the barbershop, it's like that one place, regardless of who you are as a person, but definitely as a brother, everybody's on the same level, right? It's like a a fraternal lodge for all who comes. And, Mm -hmm. And the way of entry is, hey, I just need a cut. I need a cut and I need to talk. Yeah. And that's it. No doubt. And I love it.
1: No doubt. So let's talk first cuts for our young men. Come on, what was your experience with Spades? You remember that first cut or like a memorable cut?
0: Yeah, we got pictures of Spades' first cut. I remember me and his mom had to have a real caucus around breastfeeding time and first haircut time. And I wanted to prolong how long he kept his crown before he got it cut. And I wanted to prolong the breastfeeding. And we landed at the end of the eight months for breastfeeding and for hair we did a year. And so by the time he got his first cut, people kind of was used to him having like a fro. And the guy who cut his hair, and you know this man, he went to the same high school as you, Nate the Fat.
1: Yeah, yeah, no doubt.
0: So, for those who don't know, Nate the Fat, brother Nate, is very much like a staple in like Pittsburgh culture, barber, and a DJ. And either you danced to Nate's music at a party or he was cutting your hair. And so... Nate and I were doing events together, and so when he got a haircut, it was a moment for the shop,
1: right? Mm.
0: You know what I mean. Yeah, like yeah. We pulled up; it was me and his mom, and we had pictures. And like he cried a bit, but then he got over it. But it was just kind of like everybody; it was a thing, you know what I mean? And I remember like the naming ceremony we had for him after he was born. Everybody you know, whispered something inside of his ear. And I just feel like the naming ceremony. When I talk to people who are like West Africa about how we named him after he was born, they say we, you know, back home. I was like, I didn't know that. I just knew that I wanted to name him um, history because I'm a history nerd. And my mom and my son's mom had an intervention. Like we can't name. Why we want to name him that? (laughs) Terrible. And I was like, well, let's let the baby decide. So we had like eight different names, and we would say names to him, and he liked his name the most, which is why he has the name that he has. And so I remember the barbershop was almost kind of like I wouldn't say as meaningful, but it was a big deal to be in a communal space and to have like one of my really good friends cut his hair. For me, I yeah. feel like just to kind of get like a little bit corny and out of spacey. But for black people, our hair is very much like our blessing that people try to make a curse because of how our follicles are, how they're curly. What we do with our hair and our ceremonies around hair and grooming is very much like the same as like our skin color. Yeah, yeah. And so to have like his crown cut by a beloved bro at his barbershop around people who knew everybody and knew him, yeah, like that's a very deep
2: personal moment for me.
1: Yeah, for sure, man. What was Garvey's experience like, bro?
2: Okay, so this is almost two-pronged, right? So his very first cut was this past January at home. I had my barber, Easy, who uh, cuts down in Bed-Stuy. He came to the house. I asked him, like, yo, so you cut kid hair, right? He's like, yeah. But at the time, it was just like a lot to just try to get out the house, and it was just production so i like look i just pay you to come by the house if you can't and he came by i didn't know how it was gonna go down but he gave us like a straight up and down run-up list like hey put on something cool that he want to watch maybe use his high chair because this kind of operates like a barbershop chair and let's just be cool about it and he gave him like the fresh cut man like with the scissors and the clippers and garvey was wasn't even tripping about it at first he was skeptical because he kept looking back and like Seeing what he was trying to do, like, yo, what's going on with these sound behind my ears and these scissors, right? Because he had never met Easy. But then after that, he was chill, man. He sat there like a little royal dude, man, and getting his hair cut and let Easy do his thing. So that was like, took about an hour, not even an hour, maybe like 40 minutes or whatever. It was chill, very chill, right? Elmo say the day on that one. Second cut. Now, that's at home. But the first official cut at of a barbershop was back here in Georgia. At this spot of Gresham Road, the place I grew up in South DeKalb area, right? This guy named Mook who I went to high school with who cuts pretty much everybody's kids hair for the first time. If they with the magnets in your eye, and if they still live in the area, right? I figured, hey, if you're going to go to the barbershop shop for the first time, why not go to the barber that I know from high school in my old neighborhood? So we did that. And that was 100% different from the very first cut. Like, Garvey wasn't hearing it. He was like, yo, this is weird. I don't like this chair. Um, <laughs> yo, I'm just not feeling it today. Whatever the case may be, it took three of us to really get him to, like, just chill out. I had to hold him and, like, ultimately get his hair cut. So yeah. Mook did a good job, man. Mook was all, like... Doing all kind of bends and curves and all kind of picking of the hair. And <laughs> he was maneuvering like a, I don't know, like a barber master almost. It was almost like Taekwondo or Tai Chi mixed with barbering, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, he got his hair cut. And this third time is very chill. So it's like Garvey's getting used to that environment. the ideal of the environment as well yeah. as the activity of getting your haircut. I remember the first time I got my hair cut, it was this guy by the name of Blue Gun over... In Matt Daniel Glenn, part of Atlanta, a set of uh, public housing. That's the first I remember getting my hair cut. I don't know if that was the first time I ever got my hair cut at a shop, but I do remember that guy. I just remember my dad cutting my hair a lot at the house. Like, that's like another rites of passage.
1: Yes, indeed.
2: Letting your dad cut your hair, which sometimes can go horribly wrong. Like, yes, my dad cut my hair that one time and tried to give me a box <laughs> fade, And I look like some shit off fucking going a pile or something. It was... It was terrible. I just said, yeah, just go ahead and you can just take it off. And getting a bald head back then wasn't popular. So right. I much rather deal with being called uh, something weird with the bald head than that <laughs> fucked up shit he gave me in terms of that haircut. It was terrible, bro. Yeah, man. Pile? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was terrible. Uh, he tried to give me a box fade, but it was more like. Everybody can't do that. It was more like, I don't know if it was a box or more like a, some type of container. <laughs> it was not good. He gave you the bowl cut? It wasn't even a bowl cut. It was like a, I don't know. Like a 10. <laughs> More David like a, a bag.
0: <laughs> More
2: like a bag, right?
0: <laughs> I don't know what it was. That. Oh, man. Harvey had a second cut, and you said it took three of y'all to get him still. Was one of those three Elmo?
2: No, one of them was my sister, his aunt. Okay. But <laughs> Elmo... But Elmo was a part of that, too, because I had to use the iPad. My sister held the iPad when I yeah, held him. Yeah, no And doubt. then Mookie. Yeah. So it was me, my sister Antonine, and Elmo and Mook. So technically, it was four people. There you go.
1: So we let the H's hair grow out for a long time. I wanted him to grow the super fro. Like, to this day, if he hadn't cut it, I'd be happy. I just wanted it out there because y'all remember there was so much energy in that dude's face and that match with like little fro in the hair, like there was like an identity to it. And so the first time that he actually got it cut, I was sad because I really wanted it to grow. I loved the kinetic nature of his crown at the time matched with his just like exuberance for life. Now, he's a teenager now, and that exuberance for life has just gone out the window. He's definitely in that teenage (laughs) mood, like that exuberance comes out for the things that he really loves. But it's not like the day to day where he used to be this like bundle of joy And the hair was a part of that. It was like a part of that energy. So I was really sad when when we had to get his haircut the first time. It didn't really matter to him, but it mattered to me. It was a different moment, man. How old was he? Probably three. Mm. Yeah, probably three. Because we tried a few different things. At one point, he even got him twists, which I don't think you guys have ever seen pictures of when he had his hair out. But it just wasn't working. His mom didn't love it. And ultimately, we ended up getting a cut because it was just too much of a debate. And everybody was struggling with Doing it, and I was just like, "Yo, just let it rot. Like, there's nothing to do. Just put some juices and berries in there, and he's good. <laughs> <laughs> juices and berries. but it's What is
2: this? Is it coming to America? <laughs> I ain't nothing but ultra <laughs> you know
1: what I
0: mean, <laughs> one of my friends
2: a fro that became
0: like really popular, and it was just kind of he was like, don't ever cut his hair. Right? Don't do it. Never. Yeah. Like kids' hair, man. It's a thing. Something I can tell y'all, because Spades is older, is I remember like I was trying to find that version of Nate in Brooklyn, and it took a while, but I finally found it. Uh, His brother named Kirk, who caught him on, on Flatbush. It was his shop, and Trini Cat, we just really bonded. I ended up photographing his son's first birthday, his daughter's eighth birthday, his daughter's 16th birthday, his mother's 40th birthday and so we would begin to do stuff like do like payments and barter I, remember I told spades i was like listen you got like eight haircuts already covered so when you're ready to go just like go like you don't gotta even check pre-cut like,
2: pre-play huh yeah, like, mm-hmm.
0: like you, we old school black community vibe where it's kind of like you want butter i got milk or i got some steak <laughs> you don't gotta worry about the eggs <laughs> and so i was like yo like your cuts is good i took care of some stuff but the barbershop is loud, it's raucous. Yeah. And they don't speak Spanish, but they speak like a blend of like black, but like a lot of West Indian casting from Jamaica. Yeah. When it gets to like popping, popping, you got to know a little bit of like the West Indian. Indeed. Like, yeah, you got to understand like the Brooklyn version of all those things to mm-hmm. follow the conversation because they may go from talking like this to just like Ross Clyde and just, just run off the block with something totally different. Mm-hmm. And Spades was nervous to go in there and get a cut. He kept texting, like, "Are you sure I can do <laughs> it? I don't have any money on me." It's like, "Like you're good, you're good." He was triple, quadruple checking, yeah, because he didn't want to be in that environment
1: and be like, well, "Where's your money at?" Mm-hmm. He's like, "Uh," but that's the love of the barbershop experience, like the fact that he can walk in there. They know you. Mm-hmm. Y'all are connected. You're a part of the community. He can walk in there at any time and get a cut they know you're good for it they know him that community is the rock solid shit that we're talking about yeah right now that's a beautiful thing and then that's also helps with the maturity of your son right because yeah. he goes into that environment now you know after that first time of being nervous right hopefully he went in the next time with pure confidence
0: exactly exactly like i remember like he eventually came home and it was dinner time and the look on his face was kind of like a cocktail of like shook pride of like, I walked in the barbershop, I got a cut. And then when I was done with the cut, he like just dusted me off and was just kind of like, you good. Yeah, I just walked out. You good. And I just walked on the block like, I just walked in a barbershop, barely had the weight got, like no one does that. But I wanted him to have that experience. And because he and I was on that level, like he gave him books, like, yo, 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 Spades. Check out this book is you reading something and yeah. like the same that you got a a train or a, was it a plane you, you got, got a it? plane
2: yeah, you got a plane mm-hmm. first plane he's only been dealing with cars and trains first plane ever
0: that's key like people have come into black Optum experience and I've seen kids like grab like somebody came in one time and it was like for the triage opening and somebody came through it was a husband, it was a wife and it was two kids and then one kid had like a Black panther book the daughter had some other book. And they were in a corner, and they were reading, like reading, reading. And over, I didn't tell the mom and the dad I was gonna bless them with the books, but I know the culture. I hugged my dad and say, "Yo, the kids go to hand a book." But I'm like, "No, you guys keep that. You guys keep reading." And their eyes lit up. Like, I can keep the book. I was like, "Yeah, I mean, you're reading. I want you to keep reading. I want you to remember this moment. That community is being able to like walk into a store like this and like get something. And we give our books to kids all the time. Don't be nervous. We always do this." And I think that part of what that is is understanding that connecting, like whether it be church and home and school, that fourth space is psyche, where it's not school, it's not home, it's not where I worship. There's a fourth space that adds to the architecture
2: of the human being, where you go to
0: that place and you be like, yo, this is home too.
2: Hey, it's funny. Like most barber shops, I grew up going to, I always had a chessboard somewhere, like in the corner. So a lot of young brothers and sisters would learn how to play chess first time at the barbershop. Right. But yesterday was very, very cool because it reminded me of the old Atlanta that I once knew. And I can't knock nothing about the current version of Atlanta, but the old Atlanta did include a lot of just black elements, right? Just straight up and down in my opinion, just hood shit. And I loved it. So we were sitting there waiting to get cut. And I saw a parade of Jeeps going down Edgewood. I'm like, yo, what's up with all these Jeeps? And one of the barbers that was like, yeah, so it's a parade of black women who all drive around these Jeeps and they're basically just doing like a Jeep parade going straight down Edgewood. But it was also showing in solidarity for breast cancer month with the pink ribbons and things around the Jeep, as well as obviously things around black lives matter. So it was cool. I'm in a barbershop seeing a parade of Jeeps driven by all women talking about like women issues and social issues. And it's like, you only see those type of things in a barbershop for the most, right? Because it's yeah. so connected. Yeah, it's always in the community. So yeah, whatever you see is
1: raised. Yeah, 100.
2: Yeah. Across the street was a very cool spot for like brunch, like a cool eatery. Mm-hmm. Right next to it, it was a guy who's probably homeless or whatever, just chilling out, taking a nap. Right next to that guy was a guy parking cars. Right next to the guy parking cars was a guy selling bean pies. Right next to the guy selling bean pies was somebody passing out pamphlets for some political person. So it's like you see the black experience around barbershops and hair salons. It's a beautiful thing, man. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Hey, I mean, this is so important, I think, to make sure that we recognize and acknowledge these places aren't relics, right? This is active and a part of the the community building experience that I think we lose a lot of. And I hope that we don't lose, you know, a lot of coming out of this pandemic, that nature of gathering, that nature of connecting, that nature of community and this show, this conversation, we can create our own barbershops. I think it's important. I think this forum is a part of that, but. I think was really, really important and what was formative for me, especially when I was the H's age. And I imagine even now for Spades and what will be super important for Garvey are those spaces like the barbershop that we need to continue to uphold and nurture and breed. So support your local barbershops, continue to support stages, but most importantly, support your community, 100%. My hat right now that I'm wearing just says support on it, and that's a big part of our context and a big part of the Black experience, the big part of a fatherhood experience, and hopefully our youth continue to grow up around these communities that we build and support and uphold for years and years and centuries to come. stages is a production of sauce kitchen studios produced and edited by ali ojbe and featuring the track going home by classic beats that's beats with a z you can find going home on his album spaces in noir and you can find that on apple music spotify or anywhere else you get dope ass music